Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, presenting informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, and the library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Senior Straight Talk, and can also be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers channel, so please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. You can hear the short news tidbits of interest to seniors, their families, and the general public on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. When visiting the channel, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to Senior News for today. And my two courses can be found on my website at www.phyllisamonassociates.com. For those listeners who I say are in what we call SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed, and stressed, as so many of us are nowadays, Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you capture the three R's, recharge, reset, and recommit. And family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my latest course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. And look out for my new course, Scheduled to be out very soon, coming alive with music and communicating effectively with persons having dementia, who I'm proud to say I created with Dan Cohn, founder of Music and Memory and Right to Music. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. The book addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes and assisted living residences. I hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. I anticipate an audio version of the book in the near future, so I appreciate your support. Seniors Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Seniors Straight Talk and the Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm also glad to welcome the sponsor, Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California, dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. And before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. And now for today's guest, Paul Irving. Paul Irving was actually the first guest on Voices for Elder Care Advocacy when it was launched in September 2019. Paul Irving is chairman of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging, chairman of Encore.org, and distinguished scholar in residence at the University of California Davis School of Gerontology. He's also director of East West Bancorp Incorporated and Pharos Capital PDC Incorporated. 
Paul serves in his, at his advisory board at Stanford University, USC, the Global Coalition on Aging and Working Nation. He's a founding member of the Purposeful Aging Los Angeles Steering Committee, a member of the National Council of Medicine Global Commission for Healthy Longevity, and was a participant in the 2015 White House Conference on Aging. He's a past president of the Milken Institute, an advanced leadership fellow at Harvard University, and chairman and CEO of Manit Phelps and Phillips, a law and consulting firm. Speaker, author, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review and Forbes, PBS Next Avenue named Irving an influencer for his work in the field. He was recognized with the Janet L. Wicken Humanitarian Award by Affordable Living for the Aging and the Stanford Life Journey Inspiration Award and the Loyola Law School Board of Governors Award. Hi, Paul. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Phyllis. And by the way, if, if that hasn't put everyone to sleep already, that, that, that bio, I look forward to a good conversation. Uh, oh, anyway, so it's, good, it's good to see you. It, it's, so, um, it's so thrilling for me to have you here again, being that you were the first guest when I launched Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. So this is really fantastic. And uh, we're in such a different place now at the one-year anniversary of COVID in this sure country. Are. I thought it was only fitting that, that you come and join me for a conversation so we can really focus on everything that's happened uh, with COVID, with the older population. But before we go to that, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about the Milken Center for the Institute for the Future of Aging, I think that would be, uh, that would be helpful for them. Sure, 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 sure. So our, our Center for the Future of Aging is, is part of a larger 501c3 non, nonprofit. We are nonpartisan. We are focused on, on solutions, and we engage in applied research and convening and communications uh, strategies uh, focused really on two things. One is advancing healthy longevity uh, with a particular focus on prevention and wellness. And the other is uh, to focus on financial wellness, including retirement security and lifetime uh, preparation for, for what are very likely to be longer lives. So uh, it's a fairly, a fairly broad port portfolio that ranges from work on, on the new retirement to, uh, to support for those with, with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Mm. That's, uh, that's quite a bit. It's very wide, wide ranging and far reaching, uh, correct? That's, that, is, that is correct. The good news is I've got a lot of people who work, who work with me who are s smarter than the boss. So uh, I, rely on, I rely on their, their good work and their commitment to, to mission. Uh, we, we are very focused on, on practical solutions for change in both the policy arena and in, in the private sector. And we feel like we've uh, made some progress and we're continuing to work. Oh, that's terrific. So uh, can you describe maybe, let's say, a, an initiative in particular that would be relevant for our present situation? Well, sure. I mean, I can give you one that's just an example of, of kind of the way we work. So we, we have a, a subgroup uh, in, our, in our center called the Alliance to Improve Dementia Care, which is, is focused on uh, prevention, delay, 
uh, defer and deferral of, of disease conditions, support for caregivers and those and disease and those suffering from from Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, uh, support for uh, res research and a series of of, of interventions to to address you know what is as we know the the disease that that older adults most fear and for very good reason um, and and uh, we're we're interested in policy change to. Uh, to increase urgency and and uh, and research uh, resources and and attention to uh, a disease that um, cost something approaching uh, three hundred billion dollars last year just in just in care costs in the United States and probably out of if you consider uh, economic losses as well the loss of productivity of care both both disease sufferers and caregivers you're probably talking some something close to a trillion dollars so. If you can just imagine the debates that we just had, Phyllis, over a $1.9 trillion mm -hmm. support package to address the, the damages that, that COVID has, has brought us, uh, something on the order of half of that uh, is being spent uh, and lost really every, every year in the, in, the fight against, uh, in the fight against dementia. And, and mm -hmm. again, it's, um, it's certainly not a problem for all, old, all older adults, about, about a third of people, 80 plus, and about half uh, over 85 have, have some form of dementia, cognitive loss, mm -hmm. which means a significant number don't, but it's a, it's a, it's a real problem. Yeah. And, After working in 50 nursing homes, when I, I talk to people about, you know, the research and cure and, and, and all of that, I've seen so much in terms of care that, that really needs to be improved upon for how we care for people that have dementia and Alzheimer's disease, whether it's in nursing homes or memory care uh, units in assisted living uh, residences, or even people in their own homes, uh, strategies yeah. that people can have and, and how are we going to care for these people in a way that's dignified, respectful, and affording them their maximum potential of functioning. Sure, and it's of course not just a challenge for for those suffering the disease. It's very much a, a challenge for caregivers. Uh, this this is an extended process that takes people out of out of the market, takes people away from jobs, it takes people away from other family obligations. Um, Rosalind Carter uh, once famously uh, said that that you know all of us in effect would would uh, be cared for, would be caregivers. And really, would be would be both during the course of our lifetimes, and we have to figure out new ways to support family caregivers. By the way, of all ages, the same challenges that exist for for young parents with with young kids in many ways um, are, are challenges that, that older older adults deal deal with as they deal with with uh, with ailing parents. Uh, uh, and, and it's not just a family caregivers challenge; it's very much a challenge for paid caregivers as well. These these are these are jobs that are incredibly important to disease mm -hmm. sufferers, to families, to our society. These folks are underpaid, they're underrecognized. You know, we have come to recognize who are really essential workers during the course of the last year. You know, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not just the doctors and nurses that take care of us. Uh, it's, it's the people who deliver our, our food and the people who wash the dishes in our restaurants and the people who deliver our mail. And it's very much the people who care for members of our families who, who need assistance. And uh, if there was ever a time to advocate for 
uh, increased compensation for dignity, for recognition uh, as, as COVID subsides. This is the time for that. So I'm glad there's conversation about the minimum wage uh, right. more broadly. And I'm glad that there is conversation about, about uh, kind of the dignity of work and the importance of recognizing not just those who sit at the top of our society due, due to good fortune and, and, um, and other, other circumstances, but those who sit at the bottom in many ways who were under, underpaid, underrecognized, and who need supports. Right. I, uh, they, are really, they are really the support system. They are really the foundation. There really, really can't be people at the top unless there are people at the bottom doing the work and, and holding up the, uh, laying the groundwork and doing the foundational work and providing the foundational support. It, it, it can't function. They, they really are. The, 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 you know, America is a pyramid, right? And, mm-hmm. and the people at the bottom of the pyramid in many ways, the people who build America, who sustain America, and who uh, oftentimes are not recognized and supported enough by by America for all their contributions. So I think it's something for all of us to think about. And, and uh, that's really the, the premise of, of what I do and, and what I speak about and what I've written about is that uh, care for older adults uh, is about people who were those people for the most part, who built this country, contributed to this country, uh, gave birth to the next generation, maybe fought for this country, but uh, worked in service for this country. And now when they get to their advanced years, what are, we, what are we giving them when they've given so much to us? Sure. Well, again, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this pandemic, so, so I think it was Winston Churchill who said, never let a good crisis go to, go to waste. Right. Uh, the, the, the pandemic has been tragic in, in so many ways. And we know the populations that have been most affected, most at risk, most hospitalized and most, most, most dying. Uh, but, but, but this has also, I think, given us a wake-up call, right? And, it's, and, that, and that wake-up call is, are we, are we preparing, making the investments in health infrastructure, physical infrastructure that we need to, that we need to make? Are we providing supports to those who need and deserve supports? Are we addressing the inequities and inequalities in our, in our society? Um, and, and if we're not in response to this, then shame on us. You know, uh, you know but there, was a, there was this famous, uh, you've probably seen it, famous Bill Gates. Um, I think it was, it was a, a TED Talk five or six years ago yeah. about, you, you know, the one I'm talking about, really right. to, to risk of, of a global pandemic viruses. Right. He wasn't the first person or the only person to talk about this, but it's an interesting piece if your listeners haven't, haven't heard it. But, but I would say the same thing is true today, not just for preparation for viruses, pandemics, et cetera. The same thing is true. Uh, we have a wake-up call, again, about the divisions and divides and inequities in our society, which we know will lead to bad things down the road unless we address them. So, so we, we have this wake-up call. We have the benefit of it uh, that, that came with tragedy. Uh, now, the question is, will we respond as a as a society should as as folks with collective interest and understanding the importance of nation not just not just self will we do those things and you know there there, there's a question mark i'm not saying it's easy Uh, there's also will we do those things we need to do sorry not not to interrupt you but there are also financial considerations and uh you know does does the country have the 
the fiscal or the financial appetite to uh, make well, those investments to make that happen? Yeah, well, I, I, I guess I would say two, two things. If there was ever a time to re-examine uh, American priorities, this is it. Uh, number number one and number two. If we don't make those investments, if we don't make investments in education, in public health, in physical in- infrastructure, where we know uh, the United States is is falling behind, that the inevitable consequence of that will be uh, the diminishment of American influence in, in the world, the diminishment of American leadership, the diminishment of our of our quality of life, the quality of our science. Uh, it, it's etc. Now, I mean, the good news is I'm actually hopeful about about this because I think, despite the fact that there are forces in our country kind of pushing pushing back, I think more and more people recognize that we can't. This, you know, our future can't just be about uh, whether it's lives of leisure or 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 social media posts. That we have to mm-hmm. we have to think think about how to improve. Uh, again, both social and physical infrastructure long-term for, for the benefit of, of the future of the country. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I was talking with, well, several of the conversations that I've had lately are people from the long-term care space or policymakers or people who have specific interests in long-term care, which is the space that I come from. And that whole issue of the infrastructure of nursing homes, especially many of yep. which are, are older buildings, and how can we make changes? What, what is going to be possible in terms of making the financial investments to um, make the necessary physical changes, which are probably unlikely in a lot of ways, and, and um, no one's suggesting that buildings be knocked down and rebuilt. I mean, it's just not feasible, but what kind of, what kind of financial investment can be made to, to change those environments so that they provide a, you know, better quality of life and a safer quality of life. Sure. Because as we know, this congregate living situation had a lot to do with the, the spread of the virus in, in those kinds of environments. Look, I, I actually see the change in, in housing infrastructure. Let's just talk about it, about it generally for, for a second as, as maybe one of the most exciting opportunities in the longevity economy. When I speak of the longevity economy, you, you know that I'm speaking about the, the potential for products and services and innovations right. for an increasingly old, pop, old population. So, so let, let me just throw out a couple of ideas. The, the, the first, let's, let's talk about um, homes. Let's talk about, uh, about communities uh, called call, call them, call them nursing homes or Facilities. Let, let me characterize them as, as communities, and then let me talk about policy. So, so on the question of homes, what we know is again from polling data, our AARP and a variety of organizations can confirm this: that a very substantial majority of older adults, particularly the, the generations to, to come, are interested in aging in place. They're interested in staying in their in their own homes. Well, according to the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies, something like three point five percent of U.S. homes are equipped with the five most basic elements of universal design. And that by that, I mean things like level, level entries and, and levers instead of doorknobs, right. just very basic stuff. I'm not talking about, about, you know, really exciting technological advances. So the reinvention of the American home for the reality of an older population 
is not just something that needs to be done. It's a huge opportunity for business, right? right. I mean, uh, the re- reconstructing, reimagining, uh, understanding the new architecture. This is something that every architecture student and every builder should be learning about understanding and, and acting on for, for a great future. In addition to that, so in addition to kind of the most basic stuff to change houses, uh, we are entering a new era, again, dramatically accelerated by COVID of integrated health and, and home care. And that is a tech-enabled future. One of the things that we've come to realize, of course, whether it's Zoom calls or, or, the, or the rapid, rapid adoption of telehealth or or the increasing interest in digital health tools, et cetera, more and more people will not only want to stay at home, but will address health needs at home through, through, tech, uh, through tech solutions. So again, exciting investment opportunity, exciting opportunity for innovation. This is something that young people in the Silicon Valley, if you're, if you're a Stanford D, D school student or B school student, these are the kinds of things you should be focusing on for maybe the most exciting growth opportunities uh, out, out there. Uh, beyond, well, beyond, wait, wait, ahead. I just want to, yeah. um, because I'm looking at the time and I know we both have time constraints today. So let's take a short break at this juncture. And then sure. when we come back, we can continue the conversation and talk sure. about policy and then some other issues. So we'll be right back on Senior Straight Talk with Paul Irving. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with Paul Irving. We're having just a wonderful conversation about um, everything that's happened in the last year and a half since Paul was first on the show, but also about what what's happening now in terms of aging and aging populations and environments and 
you know, it's the one year anniversary of COVID. So we want to talk about that as well. So uh, when we uh, we left off, Paul, I kind of interrupted you because I was looking at the time, but you were talking about environments. And I think you were going to go to policy a little bit, were you not? Yeah, well, but if, I will in a minute, Phyllis, but let me just interject something else. I, was to, I, was, I started talking at homes and, and right. the, the, pref, the preference for living in homes and the potential for technologies to enable longer lives in homes and enable more connectivity, right? Again, tele- telehealth, social networks, et cetera. Uh, again, back to my, back to my uh, overarching point about, about equity and what, what COVID has, has revealed. The reality is that a very substantial portion of our population doesn't have broadband access, doesn't have computers, uh, is not technologically literate, we, we talk about a lot about financial literacy and health literacy. We now have to talk about, about technology literacy. And in order for us to eff- effectively function as a society where people are wired with each other, that's kind of the basic way we do business. We do health. We do, we do education. We have to make sure that these things are available as matters of public right. You know, uh, r- right now, Internet access is not a, a public ut- utility. I personally think it should be. I personally think 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 it should it should be. So, in the same sense that people have lifeline uh, uh, elect- electric services and, and water services subsidized for those who can't who can't otherwise afford it, we have to do the same thing for technology. Uh, otherwise, people will be on the sidelines. Uh, they they won't they won't be able to participate in the game. So that, that's. Right. I just wanted to interject um, that 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 was part of what I I was talking about with you before we even started was people who are in their homes and isolated and don't have access. And especially with this vaccine, which in order to really schedule an appointment, you it's it's have have access just been horrendous. It's a it's it's the perfect example. I mean, you want to talk about about the irony, excuse me, that that the people who are, who are most susceptible to the disease are those who are uh, live, living in, in highly concentrated communities, in communities of, of color, uh, under, underserved and, and underrecognized populations. Those populations, and, and obviously older, those populations are the populations most needing the vaccine today, right? What we, we need to get those vaccines into arms. And if they can't access uh, scheduling, and if they can't figure out where where to be and where to go, and if they can't get there because right. of lack of lack of mobility, lack of lack of transportation, then we've really failed. So, so the fact that you recognize that, Phyllis, says that there's a bigger problem because because as as the pandemic subsides, we hope uh, we will we will run into similar pro- problems with chronic disease. If people, if if we're all getting our uh, our annual checkup, our regular annual checkup online with, with our doctor, with our physician, and somebody else, somebody else can't do it, that person who is likely at higher risk of hypertension, higher risk of type 2 diabetes, higher risk of cardiovascular d- disease, uh, in a position where they and their family can't diagnose uh, cognitive challenges, if they don't have access to that same technology, then, then, our, then our health system is a more serious failure than we're already concerned that it is. Uh, I agree with you 500%. And I, I was telling you when we started that I live in Connecticut. I know you are on the West Coast in California. But I, when I went to schedule the vaccine, it was, just, it was just a horrendous experience. This 
website that was very difficult to navigate, I, I finally reached out to my congressman. I, I wrote an email and somebody called me back and he said that, well, they were kind of using this all over the country and probably one of the reasons was so many people were trying to schedule the vaccine. But but what could certainly that could lead to is frustration. And you, here you want people to get the vaccine. So now it's such a, a overwhelming experience that the likelihood is that somebody might just say, forget it. Right. Uh, and the, uh, and that's and, counterproductive and is, to what you're looking to accomplish. Of, of course it is. And, and, and the real point is, is that you're educated, you're, you have access, you, you know to call, to call your <laughs> local elected official, et, et, et cetera, et cetera. And imagine circumstances for people who don't have that education, don't have that access, don't feel as comfortable as you, as you do advocating for themselves. And that's a significant proportion of our population. So again, these are, these are kind of core values questions from my perspective that we really have to ask ourselves about. What, is, what does uh, citizenship and, and residency mean, it mean in America? What do, we, what do we owe each other? Are we, are we really uh, interconnected and interrelated or not? Mm. I think that those questions are being answered on, on the political stage and elsewhere uh, as we speak. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. So uh, when, when we talked about... Uh, infrastructure and homes and people wanting to stay in their homes and what the possibilities are. I know you wanted to touch on some policy issues. Was yeah, that- well, and, and, and again, I, I think it's important that we not ignore the, the importance of, of assisted living, skilled, skilled nursing, memory, memory care, and other, and other communities. Because while, while aging in place may be an aspiration for many, many people, the reality is, is we need both. We need, we need caring communities, care, care, care facilities, if, if, if you will. And we need, we, need to, we need home adaptation. It's a continuum. Right. right. So, so uh, I think where we will likely end up if we do this intelligently and equitably, we'll end up in a position where more people can live at home longer. Uh, but where where these other uh, communities that are that are rich with experience and services and and, and all the rest uh, will be there wait, waiting and, and ready. I, I've made the case to, to people, you know, it was interesting. I was talking to, uh, to one of my, one of my directors who was the founder of NIC, the national, uh, national center for, for seniors housing and care about, uh, what I've always seen as a, as a tremendous, tremendous opportunity for people in that, in that field, you know, um, uh, in, in assisted independent living, assisted living, skilled nursing, um, businesses, uh, care has been provided to older people for for a generation. They they know they know their customer. They know their client. They know their 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 patient. And so one of the questions I think for that world is, how can they export understanding the power of technology? How can they export that that expertise uh, to to home and community? I think that's a that's a huge opportunity. You know, on the one hand, we have large technology companies, technology innovators, uh, device. Uh, device creators, the Internet of Things, et cetera. On the other hand, we have folks who've been working in the field of, of geriatrics, gerontology, uh, care for older adults for a long time, who have knowledge and understanding and, and compassion, uh, we, we hope. Uh, the question is, how do, we, how do we capitalize on the best of, those, of both of those worlds? Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, so how do we? 
<laughs> well, I think I think so. I think uh, it's it's uh, it's private private partnerships and public private partnerships. Uh, it's it's rethinking. You know this uh, reimbursement at the at the federal level. There have certainly been advancements in in kind of the way CMS and and uh, and other aspects of the federal government look look at 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 paying for for needs. Uh, what we know is is caregiving is uh, and caregiving long term care remain a remain a huge problem. Medicaid pays some caregiving expenses, Medicare not. Right, and we have to ask our ask ourselves: Is there some mechanism? We know we know by the way that private long term care insurance has been a relatively unsuccessful product. It's 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 overly expensive. Uh, there are questions about about coverage. It's been difficult, by the way, not just for insurance, but for the insurance companies themselves, who who initially I think underestimated the cost, particularly related again to dementia. Uh, some people estimate that the most expensive year of, of our lives medically is the last year of our lives for for people suffering with dementia. It's often the last seven years of our life or, or, or so. So the, right. the the insurance companies had challenges too. So if we know that 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 those policies really don't work and certainly don't cover enough enough people, and if we know that existing federal programs don't pay, how will we create a social mechanism? Again, thinking about private capital, thinking about the power of, of, of government, the things that only government can do to, to provide uh, really broad-based supports. How can we come up with, a, with an approach that can both support care, caregivers and those who need care? It's, 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 a, it's an incredibly important uh, issue, and I would describe it as a care crisis that needs to be on the top of the policy agenda. Yeah, I, I agree. The but it's a very complicated it's a very complicated issue. And the other day, uh, I had a conversation with Alex Spanko from Skilled Nursing News, and we discussed the fact that really all people have to come to the table and have a conversation collaboratively, rather than people just. like in pockets pointing fingers at each other, that's not going to be a productive approach that's going to solve this, find solutions to it. I shouldn't say so. So we actually actually have a report coming out relatively soon. You asked earlier what we do. So another example of of what we do is we we did uh, not too long ago what we call a financial innovation lab focused on long-term care. And and, uh, and that incorporated... uh, uh, folks from Wall Street. It incorporated uh, care, caregivers in the caregiving community. It incorporated uh, payors, payors and providers of various types, and those uh, those involved in in nonprofits and the, and the social sector. And the question was uh, was were there were there mechanisms, new new approaches, new tools, new new financial strategies that could potentially cover a much much larger portion of the American public at, reason, at reasonable cost. And it's a huge challenge. I think, again, there's no question, this is going to require both pub- public and private uh, uh, initiative and collaboration partnership and very likely, uh, in a sense, capital stacks, risk risk al- allocation that's going to involve both government and, and the private sector. I'd like to believe, by the way, that it could just be a public program, but I suspect that the cost is so overwhelming mm-hmm. That, that absent really radical political change, that's that's a that's unlikely. But I think that there are things we can do to extend 
extend reach to a lot more people and provide the protection that's needed. Yeah, I don't, I don't expect that we're going to solve that financial uh, discussion here or that, that yeah. come up with a solution here. But as we're speaking, I'm just wondering if portions of, of and, and this may not be appropriate for this conversation, I mean, certainly to delve into it, but as you were speaking, I'm thinking, is there a portion of, you know, tax, um, I don't want to say write-offs, you would know better how to describe it, but, uh, you know, rather than people find loopholes to, to save on, just save on paying the government taxes, is there some kind of... Uh, 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 Different kind of, kinds of health accounts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some yeah. kind of collaborative I mean, those, effort that can be put in place from a code point of view that would help support changes. Look, there, there, there are lots of answers, and 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 the question always is going to be cost. Um, and I and and again, you probably sense my own politics, but but uh, a cost I think has to be balanced uh, against need and, and long term long-term objectives, right? So uh, there are some who would, who would very likely say, this is, a, this is a, a question of personal need, personal behavior, personal risk. It's on, it's on you. We know that that doesn't work. Right. Uh, there, there are very likely others who, who would say, this, is, this should be 100% a, a government solution. The only, the only entity, the only organization that can scale and spread and cover uh, the 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 number of people and the number of challenges that need to be addressed is, is the government, and I think that that's right. But I also think it's very likely unrealistic uh, politically in the United States. So I think that the that the likely solution, as it is with so many things, will be some kind of a of a mashup of of um, of insurance insurance products, savings mechanisms, policy changes, and you're right, potentially new account uh, provisions with with various tax, uh, you know, kind of tax characteristics, et cetera. It is, it is complex, but it's, again, something we, we have to deal with because uh, we, we know the demographics. We know, we know what our population will look like uh, a couple decades from now, absent uh, a wholesale change, uh, open, open borders on the immigration front and a, uh, a, a rush of childbirths that is is unimaginable, right? So, uh, especially during I, COVID. <laughs> I'm sorry I, to say I, I, that. Yeah, that's I, already I, been I, documented. It, it's I, already I, been documented. I, you know, I, I remember the New York brownout. Um, I was just years, years and years ago when when there was kind of a mini baby boom in New York right. City. But, I, I was but, I was I was thinking about that when this happened, and they started to talk about it. And as I said it to you, I was I was thinking of that in my mind. So it's funny that you referenced that because that is that is a reality. It's it sounds funny, but it really is a reality of the situation. That yeah, that but, but the truth matter. The truth matter is 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 that is the young people are having fewer kids, not just in America but across the world. Um, we see we see birth rates well well below replacement rate in, in North America, Europe, uh, much of Asia. China's reversed the ones with the one-child policy, but it Correct. actually has, has not been successful. China now is looking for government interventions to, to try to encourage uh, encourage more, more, more kids. So, you know, look, you know, I also talk about things like changing work norms. We are going to have to encourage and enable and and, and support uh, people who, who work longer for the benefit of, of their own financial security and for the benefit of our, of our companies and our economy. 
uh, our society is simply going to look older years years from now. And um, I think I think that that is an inevitability in the same sense that we're we're dealing with climate change. Uh, and if we don't adopt systems to deal with the reality of the needs of older adults, uh, the expenses of, of, old, of older adults, the potential of, of older adults, the opportunities associated with, with this demographic shift, then we will have missed the boat. Oh, absolutely. Is, is it not correct that the United States Census Bureau has said, there are many statistics around this, but at 2035, which seemed like so far down the road a few years ago, is now really just uh, 14 years down the road, which will come upon us very quickly that the 65 and older population will outnumber the population that's 18 and under. But as you said, this is not only an issue in the United States, this is an issue around the world. It's it's global. And and even, even, you know, in the youngest continent, Africa, um, uh, if you project out, Africa will be the most populous continent in in the world in, in the, in the next century, in the 22nd century, uh, but but the same phenomena, the advancement of, of women, of women, which uh, which I th- I think is in many ways freed w- women from uh, the compulsion to feel that they have to have large large families, mm-hmm. uh, re- reduction in infant mortality rates, um, a whole series, just change behaviors, change prep, change preferences. Again, we very much have seen it in, in China. Young people, uh, rather than having multiple kids have kind of enjoyed the notion that they might, you know, buy a condo and travel. Right. So, so the, the same thing I think will, will, will happen even in those places that have younger populations t- today. Uh, pol- policies that made sense when the, when the population curve was, was much, much different really just have to be reexamined across the board in, in business and in education and in, in health and community design in architecture, you name it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this has been such a thoughtful, insightful conversation. I almost don't want it to end, but I think we are coming to the end. I, I just want to give you the opportunity to tell people how to find out about some of your initiatives and the Milken Institute and, and some of the other wonderful programs sure. you have going on. Well, you, you can, um, anybody can, uh, Search for the Milken Institute Center for the Future of, of Aging, and you'll find us, and you'll find our, our work. In terms of me, I I I post on I think Phyllis, you know, I post on LinkedIn and and uh, and Twitter. So every now and then I'll tweet out something, whether it's smart or not, who knows? But um, if somebody <laughs> if somebody's interested in following me on, on Twitter, I welcome them. And and uh, uh, we we regularly publish. I think you know. Uh, our, our own work and, and also essays and, and kind of thought leadership pieces from people in our, in our circle on our leadership council and academic and policy council. Um, so if, if people are inclined to look, we would, we would appreciate their eyeballs. Well, I will only say this. I have never read anything of yours that wasn't of, uh, wasn't insightful and of uh, so beautifully written. And I, I just want to say at the end that you wrote a beautiful testimonial for my book. And when I read it, I, I just, uh, I don't know, I was, it just warmed my heart. I was happy. I was happy to, to, to do it. You're, you're doing good work and you're, you're engaged and you're an example. And the fact that you can't get your, your shot should worry, should worry all of us. Because if, you, <laughs> if you, if you can't get it, then I'm not. And, and by the way, I have had both of mine. I think, I think I told you so. 
it, it, it is a, a feeling of freedom and euphoria. And, um, and I would just leave, leave you with this. I've, I've been worried about vaccine hesitancy by people who, who will avoid it, but there seems to be this kind of emerging a sense of FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of yes. missing out. Uh, so, so anybody who's, who's debating about it, uh, please do get your vaccine as soon as you, as soon as you can. It'll, it'll change your, your feelings about the future. Well, I will say that I am scheduled in a couple of weeks for the Good. first of my two vaccines. So as we uh, come to an end, I have to thanks, thank you, Paul, for generously sharing your time on Senior Straight Talk for the enlightening conversation. Your insights are always tremendously valuable for the valuable work you do. And please join us on our next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.